How we doing, folks? Welcome to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I would like to say, what's up? How's it going, everybody? Hope you're well. Um, If this is your first time tuning in, uh, please feel free to uh, reach out, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and, you know, let me know what you think of the show. Um, First impressions are always cool to hear, so I'd love to know what you think, what you think of the different takes that I have, what do you think of the points that I've made, what do you think about the quality of the show, whether that's audio the way in which the show is put together, the way in which we go over things, um, you know, I'd really love to hear from you. There's a few ways you can do that. So you can reach out to me on uh, any of my social media platforms. I have Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. And you can also reach out to me through my uh, podcast's email, which is in defense of liberation at gmail.com no caps or spaces there and i would really love to hear from you i've heard from a few of you in the past and it's really awesome to know that there are people out there that listen to the show that take anything from it that learn anything from it but i hope that you folks know that i too am learning i too would love to learn from you and I would learn, or I would love to learn what it is that you folks also are learning. Um, so please reach out, build that relationship, build that connection, because um, that's what it's all about. That's what we're here for. That's what we do the show for. And that's what we're organizing for, because as Che Guevara points out, you know, a true revolutionary is, uh, you know, ultimately led by an immense feeling of hope or excuse me, immense feeling of love. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to put out in the world. That's what we're trying to build. And so I'd love to help build that with you. I'd love you to help me build that, you know, build that community, build that connection between us and uh, other people. So yeah, if you would like to feel free to reach out. But anyways, um, we have a bit to talk about today. And I took some notes So I'm going to try my best to uh, not get too rambly until we get to our last point. Um, We've been spending a lot of time talking about the uh, ongoing crisis in the Ukraine uh, with Russia, uh, NATO, uh, the United States, and the European Union going to bat. And uh, so I'm going to save that for last We're going to focus on some of the conflicts that are going on all over the world that while this, you know, conflict and this crisis is important, the one between uh, the Russian Federation and the Ukraine, um, but I would like to also focus on some of the things that are being lost, uh, some of the things that are being ignored, uh, and some of the things that are just plainly not making headlines. Um... So as we know, the United States is buddy-buddy with Israel. Um, Now, some people need to take the time to really look into the history of the Israeli settler colonial state 
and actually learn a bit about the Palestinian resistance struggle. I do not have all the facts and I should not be the person that you come to for questions about this. I have much to learn myself. But that is commonly the conflict that we hear about uh, Israel being involved in. However, if you know anything about the region, you know that Israel is the United States and the European Union's go-to for any and all conflict, any and all, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I want to use? Essentially, they're their agent within the region. So Israel has carried out yet another bombing against Syria. Now, this goes against international law. They've been doing it since 2011. Israel is also actively in combat with uh, Lebanese forces and other forces throughout the region, um, aided often by the Egyptian government, military, and uh, you know state apparatus, aided also by um, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and other groups of the sort who seem to have quite a um, friendship and uh, relationship brewing with one another, considering they are all actively not only engaged in war crimes throughout their countries, but they're also engaged in, uh, you know, uh, financial transactions, trade deals, military training uh, organizations, private contracting companies with the United States, with Canada, with Britain, with France, with Germany, and with other countries. Um, Israel also has been playing an active role in the African continent where they are attempting to make a foothold Now, of course, as we know, and we mentioned on the show not too long ago, in the meeting between the European and African unions, it was clear that the majority of African states do not, in fact, want Israel on the continent, do not want to recognize Israel as an observer state. And so because of this, this uh, debate was tabled. But ultimately, it was said that for the time being, Israel would not be given the same amount of influence in the region as it had up until this point. But on the 24th and the 23rd of February this year, Israel carried out bombing strikes near Damascus, one of the largest cities, if not the largest city in Syria. Um, in the bombing on the 23rd, There was quite a bit of material damage, quite a bit of damage to buildings and roads. Um, However, there were not, as far as I could find, reported deaths. However, on the 24th, two days ago, on Thursday, three three Syrian military personnel were killed. And of course, as we mentioned, or should have mentioned, this was an unprovoked attack. Um, Similar such attacks which are happening... Um, all throughout the region by Israel, especially against Palestine, um, against 
their uh, combatants uh, within Hezbollah, the uh, Lebanese resistance group, which I would like to, I put an asterisk next to it because a while back I was talking about Hezbollah and I called it an Iranian resistance group. It is not. I was incorrect. I would like to point that out. It is a Lebanese resistance group um, who Israel claimed uh, this bombing was a warning for uh, and a warning for also the Syrian uh, military to cease collaboration with Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah has been giving critical support to Syrians in the area for almost 10 years throughout this war that Israel has been waging. Uh, and uh, I would also like to point out here that this, this is after a few missiles were shot down, meaning they were intending to cause far more damage. They were intending to create much more of a picture of what they want to happen if uh, Syria continues any collaboration with resistance groups, if Syria con- continues fighting uh, Israeli uh, colonialism and imperialism. But, um, you know, a few people took to social media, a few people went online and talked about what was happening because, you know, obviously we have all these, uh, all this hype uh, about the crisis in Ukraine. And so, you know, folks were trying to point out the contradiction between the coverage of these two, you know, crises. Um, someone by the name of Assad uh, Ab Khalil uh, went on Twitter and said, uh, Fiery rhetoric, fiery rhetoric causes more consternation than brutal bombing and war crimes by Israel and Gulf. Uh, sorry, I wrote this terribly. Gulf clients uh, of the United States, which I think that's you, you can't put it any cleaner than that. You know, the United States is trying to put on this front that it is this. You know, obviously, as we've discussed before, this democratic um, freedom fighter that's going across the world and and taking down the bad guys, taking down uh, the evil, evil communists across the world, the evil, evil uh, sovereign states that are fighting for self-determination and fighting against capitalism, imperialism. Of course, the United States paints itself in uh, such a light because it is an empire. And so to continue being an empire, you have to at least have some kind of hegemonic control over the minds and uh, media of the world to convince them that this empire, you know, shouldn't be actively resisted in each and every instance. So um, People's Dispatch went on to say, quote, Both Syria and Lebanon have filed several complaints within the United Nations. The United Nations has failed to take any steps to address the, er, yeah, has taken, has failed to take any steps to address these concerns yet. So it's clear that, as always, the United States is trying to paint a flowery picture of itself, but it is also trying to paint over the not-so-flowery picture of itself through misinformation, through disinformation, discluding information, not running stories on this, not allowing the truth to be heard on these topics, not allowing for the reality 
which is occurring across the world, to be actively contrasted to the words and the rhetoric which the United States talking heads continue to put out in front of the world stage. But in shifting gears here, Israel is also committing crimes in Sheikh Jarrah, where they are continuing to send settler mobs in, where uh, Palestinian people, many of whom are elderly or children, are watching as their family members are arrested or brutalized, watching as their homes are bulldozed or bombed or, you know, torn down or burned down. Uh, They are continuing also uh, their attacks in other regions such as East Jerusalem. But let us remember, folks, the state that we refer to as Israel is occupying Palestinian land. So everywhere Israel is, they are actively committing war crimes against Palestinian people. It doesn't need to be explicit. It doesn't need to be violent. And it doesn't need to be a certain kind of violence. Because the fact that Palestinian people are not able to live, breathe, walk, talk, and exist as Palestinian people want and have for countless generations because of the Israeli or the Israeli settler colonial occupation, then it is clear that all of this is violence. Whether it's because, you know, Palestinian people can't get food or whether it's because Palestinian people can't get medical care or whether it's because Palestinian people are separated from their families, separated from their homes. Um, All of this is violence. And then to add on top of that, the airstrikes, the active uh, brutalization by settler mobs, by police, by the IDF, this is an act of genocide. This is a systematic eradication and termination of people through multiple different forms, through public health uh, discrimination, through active brutalization and imprisonment by police, through murder, and through other forms of colonization. And yet we have these, you know, uh, mainstream forces like Amnesty International being torn to shreds for simply calling Israel an apartheid state, which many feel is not an accurate, uh, you know, accumulation of what the Israeli state has continued to do. But regardless, this is what we are facing worldwide. And as we continue to look throughout the world, we see that in Yemen, the war continues being led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, as well as other forces that are aided, funded, armed, trained, and backed by the United States, continue to actively, you know, commit war crimes, actively uh, terrorize the Yemeni people, who very few, including myself, have any much knowledge on their struggle. I mean, I was able to listen to a few incredible episodes, which East is a Podcast has put out, which you should check out. I've also heard some podcasts by, I think it's uh, Rev Left Radio that did one, and somebody else. It might have been Guerrilla History Podcast, but I could be getting that wrong. Regardless, though, many of us, including myself, need to continue learning about the Yemeni people's resistance movement and their struggle for liberation against the Saudi Arabian 
and United Arab Emirates front uh, that is, you know, the richest and most powerful nations in the area. But because of the ongoing resistance, which, you know, you got to take into account Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other forces of the like are given everything. They're given essentially blank checks by the IMF, by the United States, by lobbyists within our government. Um, They're given control over our own government, as Abby Martin from the Empire Files was speaking to in her uh, lawsuit in Georgia against the uh, Israeli state's involvement in the state legislation. It's clear that what's happening here is not able to be understood as a one-to-one conflict between the Israeli state and the resistance movements. What I mean is this. These governments, these states, which are given guns, nukes, bombs, boats, airplanes, helicopters, and blank checks, are fighting against folks in sandals, fighting against folks with homemade rockets, and fighting against folks who are not fighting for colonialism, not fighting for empire, not fighting for imperialism, but fighting for survival. And yet all across the international scale or uh, stage, you have these awful capitalist and imperialist nations which are given the run of the mill in the United Nations, in NATO, in the European Union, to completely dictate and decide what it is that the other nations within these military pacts commit to. For example, when the United Nations votes on the necessity to denazify and teach critically about fascism across the globe, Israel and the United States vote against it. And guess what? International law is not created. When the United when the UN Charter was presented in 1947 and all the United Nations states signed on to it, the US, the European nations such as France, Britain, uh, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, And now states like Israel, Saudi Arabia, etc. are allowed to act with true, true, um, oh God, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they, they get, there's no consequences. Um, immunity, immunity. They get to act with immunity. Yet when Russia, right? And we'll hit on this quick and then we'll bounce to the next point. When Russia creates a movement within the United Nations known as the Friends of the UN Charter, which is signed by something like 14 plus nation states, that isn't talked about. That's not important. I think it's important to bring up the the comparison also between the way in which these nations, Israel, the United States, and others handle problems like hunger, houselessness, compared to nation states like Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, 
Vietnam, China, and plenty of other places that, you know, we want to sit here and say, oh, well, these places aren't socialist, there's still contradictions, these places have their issues, they, this, that, and the third. Well, yeah, maybe there are issues which still exist under nations which are actively fighting for liberation. Gee, could you believe it? But at the end of the day, we have to understand that what we truly need is a mass mobilization across the globe against imperialism, against warmongering, against capitalism, not against nations which, albeit, have contradictions, but which are fighting to eradicate them, not further capitalize on them to divide and conquer the globe and their working class people. The U.S. military is also actively committing war crimes across the world by participating in unilateral sanctions against nations which, in any and all accounts, again, are just trying to fight for sovereignty and self-determination. Their continued embargo on Cuba is an absolute illegal and inhumane action which they have continued for 60 plus years. We must demand an end to the uh, embargo and sanctions on Cuba, the sanctions on Venezuela, the sanctions on Iran, the sanctions on Nicaragua, the sanctions on Bolivia. We have to continuously fight for a accountability which does not exist on the global stage as of yet. And we must know, living within the belly of the beast, that the only thing that is going to be able to accurately hold these forces and imperialists accountable is a mass movement which is intending to overthrow them from their positions of power and wealth uh, you know, accumulation. U.S. imperialism is everywhere, yet we want to talk about Russian imperialism. We want to talk about Chinese imperialism, social imperialism, while the largest military industrial complex apparatus is actively waging war against people across the world in front of our very faces And you got socialists and communists that want to sit here and focus on critiquing China, focus on critiquing the Communist Party of Peru or uh, Pedro Castillo, want to focus on critiquing Daniel Ortega, want to focus on critiquing Luis Arce or, you know, Xiomara Castro or whatever. And it's like, dude, what are you doing here? What are you doing here for real? What is your who told you that? Who told you that that's important? Who's who's benefiting from those conversations? Ask yourself. Don't 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 get frustrated. Don't don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at nobody for calling out your bullshit. Moving forward to make our way into the discussion of of you know the ongoing crisis and the Ukraine and, and further analysis of the development since then. I want to talk about the speech given by the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations, which I think everyone should go on YouTube and watch. If you just search Kenyan UN ambassador speech, it pops right up. Watch the whole speech if you can. Um, Because I think whenever I 
watch these speeches whenever I check out like anything put out by like the UN. I always try to find the full clip because sometimes not for nothing. Like for example, when um, the new well, the prime minister of uh, uh, Barbados spoke last year about climate crisis, about imperialism. Um, it was quite riveting. And if you were to go on YouTube and search for that speech, there's about three or four clipped versions that look as if it's the full video. But then you find a 22-minute video that's the full speech. And there's a lot of very important parts that are left out in all of those clipped videos. But anyways, yeah, go find that speech um, because I think it's important to center here the peoples of the global south and also the peoples of these regions in the Ukraine and the uh, newly, you know, uh, announced sovereign states as well as the Russian Federation. It's important to center the people's struggle and what they will suffer from. I would like us to critically engage with the arguments put forward here because, to be honest, you know, I and plenty of others came out, you know, a few months ago and we were like, yeah, no, this is just saber rattling. The U.S. doesn't got it. Russia's not going to go to war. Da, 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 da. And here we are, you know, 100,000 people have already been displaced up on top of the, you know, 2.5 million reported displaced people uh, that have been pushed out of these regions in the last eight years uh, of conflict between um, the, the two governments here. And, uh, you know, it's clear also because 137 people have died that the special military operations that are referenced by um, Putin are, are military operations. Now, I spoke to a comrade of mine, Nick, and I'll mention him by name so he knows that I'm talking to him here if he listens to the show. I don't actually know if he does, if he does but Nick, I told you that this was a conflict where Russia was going in and they were going to have, have to act defensively. I cannot, uh, with a clear conscience, say that that is ac- actively what is happening right now. I can't say right now that I 100% can stand behind the actions of the Russian Federation. And I also don't believe that I should. I don't think anyone should 100% stand behind any ruling class government, any capitalist state, regardless of, you know, whether or not they happen to once have been a, uh, you know, incredible uh, republic of of peoples fighting for self-determination. Because as the article put out by In Defense of Communism, uh, titled A Leninist Approach to the uh, Ongoing Crisis in Ukraine, I think it's titled, We can't support Russia as if it's the Soviet Union. We can't talk about Russia as if it's the Soviet Union. The class character, the government structure, the uh, nature and character of their economy, of their production, of their military, all of that has changed. Um, But here's the point I want to stress before we start talking about what the Kenyan ambassador has to say. Two things, because I think it's important to put these in context, and if I don't right now, I think it's going to be weird to bring them up in other points, because it's going to make it sound like I'm actively just defending Russia when I'm not. 
So two things need to be clearly understood, maybe three. First of all, all the way back in the 1920s, there was obviously a lot of crises happening between the Soviet Union and the Ukraine. And at one point in time, this crisis and this conflict had led to armed struggle. Now, the character and the nature of this armed struggle is quite different than the one happening today. But then it is important to understand that this crisis, this conflict did not happen or start in 2022. It, it's been going on for generations. So that's the first thing I want to stress. The second thing I want to stress is that back in 2014, there was an attempt by the peoples of these regions to fight for sovereignty, to fight for representation in the Ukrainian government. They voted in a democratically elected administration that probably would have been able to work things in a different way, go about things in a different way that might have led to different issues, but still might not have been the exact same. And it was overthrown by a U.S.-backed coup, right? And since then, since 2014, there has been 14,000 people that have died in these regions. There has been, again, 2.5 million that have been displaced. There's been all kinds of, you know, attacks. There's been all kinds of conflicts between uh, the governments, between uh, people groups, between uh, neo-Nazis and resistance uh, groups, between uh, religious, cultural, social groups. Um, And so because of this, we can't just simply understand this concept or this conflict as Putin versus Zelensky or Putin versus Biden or Russia versus the United States or Russia versus the Ukraine, Russia versus NATO. What this has to be understood as is an internationalist conflict between two capitalist powers that are intending in one way or another to further divide the world. Now, in going forward, these are the three things that I just want to stress. In going forward, We want to center the people. We want to center the struggles that they will endure. And this is difficult because of misinformation. It's an ongoing conflict. You're going to have false, uh, you know, news. You're going to have incorrect analysis. You're going to have an incredible amount of uh, bias and misinformation. So we really have to be fighting and struggling instead to build relationships, to try to connect with the people who are engaging in these struggles, or at least in some way connect with people who are closely related, closely connected to these struggles that aren't assholes writing in New York City or LA or in Chicago or in DC or in Portland about a conflict in a country they've never been to between people they have no understanding of uh, in a place where they are not able to get accurate information of. Okay, let's remember this. So the Kenyan ambassador, right, came out and gave a pretty riveting speech, which, um, again, I think we need to critically engage in. Um, He said a few things which I feel are um, really important, such as the fact is like, you know, the Kenyan people, the people of the global south and of Africa especially, 
have had to suffer time and time again because of the wars and conflicts and crises caused by these empires, caused by, you know, uh, expansionism, caused by imperialism and capitalism. And he didn't necessarily use those words. He used the words empire. And uh, he mentioned also the fact that in these cases, you know, who really benefits from these wars is the same people who have been benefiting from the destruction, the dehumanization, and the decimation of the global South and its people since, you know, the beginning of colonialism and imperialism. So in centering this in his conversation, I think he makes a fantastic point about the necessity to, especially in the age of nuclear weaponry, to try to engage in conflicts and in crises in a nonviolent manner. Now, I know this sounds goofy coming from a Marxist-Leninist, so let me express what I mean by that. What we are looking for globally and internationally is a level of diplomacy, internationalism, and humanity that does not allow for certain conflicts and contradictions between governments to get to a point where the people that these governments rule over are out in these you know, streets shooting guns at each other, getting bombed, watching their children, you know, having to be actively traumatized by this shit. That is not what we should be looking for. On top of that, when we look at, you know, the struggles that are happening in these places, we also have to remember the fact that a lot of these times people are having to watch as their entire lives, everything that they've known, Everything that they've ever been is destroyed. And a lot of times, if it's not destroyed, they're never able to come back to it anyways. You know, if you look all throughout West Asia and North Africa, what we might, you know, commonly call um, the Middle East, you see that countries like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and um, Syria and Jordan and Lebanon and all of these incredibly beautiful, beautiful cultures and histories and peoples and, and nations are destroyed, turned to gravel. And although we do not want, you know, um, the U.S. to go around and do as it pleases and continue to oppress and exploit people all across the world, that does not mean that we can uncritically call for global warfare. Because at the end of the day, as I've been mentioning, the people who this hurts the most are the folks who are just your regular old citizens of these nations, just trying to live life as best they can within a global imperialist and capitalist framework. And because of that, you know, they are fed racism, they are fed nationalism, they are fed patriarchy, they are fed capitalism, they are fed all kinds of things. And eventually, because this is the nature of capitalism imperialism, it leads to conflict. 
Now that conflict does not need to be with nukes in the air or with submarines encircling nations. That conflict can and should be handled in the international organizations that exist already to handle those type of conflicts. If these international organizations are incapable of handling these conflicts, then we must consider a few things. One, are they actually built to do so? Now, if we look at the history of the League of Nations, of um, uh, the United Nations, of NATO, I mean, NATO's own self-described mission was to stop the encroachment of the Russian people and to stop the spread of socialism and communism. On top of that, the League of Nations and the United Nations, although they are the framework by which we currently have to stop these conflicts, they have been actively used to further, again, divvy up and uh, divide the world into capitalist and imperialist, quote, spheres of influence. They have also been used to facilitate war. I mean, the United Nations has been around since 1947, and since then you have had the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the um, conflicts all throughout the Gulf area. You've had coups and military conflicts throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. You've had active invasions by the United States in more than 40 countries across the globe so as to overthrow their democratically elected governments, such as in, uh, you know, the Bay of Pigs or in um, Bolivia in 2019 or in Venezuela in 2020 and in 2021, which both failed, and in Libya in 2011 under Barack Obama and in Iran and in Afghanistan and in, you know, all of these countries that we are actively saying are our backyard or our front yard, depending on whatever fucking president says it, because this is supposed to be some kind of important uh, distinction. It's quite clear that, in fact, what is happening is a continuation of the imperialist nature of capitalism, which cannot simply by, be stopped unless the bulwark that is stopping it is of a different class character. The United Nations, the NATO states, the European Union, and even in some cases other, you know, uh, uh, global internationalist uh, groups led in the global south because there is still neocolonialism and neo-imperialism uh, that make their way into... Um, these countries and take over their governments. This is one of the ways in which hybrid war uh, is used. But anyways, so let's let's get to the um, let's get to what the Kenyan ambassador said. So he came on and he described that necessity to again handle these contradictions and conflicts in a non-aggressive, non-violent manner. He spoke to the need to go back to the UN Charter, which says, you know, all states must solve problems through peace. 
He says, diplomacy must be given a chance. He mentions the fact that the African history, the history of, you know, the African continent, but also of continents such as Latin America, Asia, and other global South nations, has been born through empire, has been born bloody and deadly in an awful, you know, harmful birth through empirical and imperialistic destruction, decimation, and division of ancient empires, of ancient ties between peoples that go on far before, you know, a lot of these European nations even knew Africa existed. Um, So he also says that because of that, Africa as a continent and, you know, its people have essentially decided that rather than fight and wage war and argue and, you know, lead themselves to conflict over territorial, you know, uh, claims and uh, different kinds of religious, cultural and other uh, contradictions, They instead have, um, you know, inherited these borders, inherited these crises and these conflicts and these contradictions. And rather than adding to them, they feel that, in fact, they must work with them and work towards trying to build what they can, what is best for all with what they have. That's quite admirable, you know? I I think that that is, uh, I think that's a materialist approach. I think that it's a very clear and conscious approach that doesn't really allow for much idealism. That's for sure. That's one way that you could look at that. He said, but they do, however, pursue... continental, political, economic, and legal integrations, meaning that they don't just simply, you know, again, okay, this is Kenya, this is what they said was Kenya, so anybody who isn't Kenyan, you guys can go fuck yourselves, you know, don't come around here, if you come near our border, we're gonna fucking arrest you, if you, you know, try to come in here because you got family in here, we're gonna arrest you. No, that's the United States, that's Israel, that's Saudi Arabia, that's Britain, that's Poland, that's Germany, that's, you know, all of these, that's the Ukraine, huh? So, when we look at, then, the clearly distinct difference between the approach that the Kenyan ambassador is calling for and the approach that the United States... Russia, Europe, and other nations have taken, you can see a a necessary distinction, right? I mean, personally, I don't always believe that nonviolent conflicts are possible because of the, you know, pre-existing condition of violence, the pre-existing condition of imperialism and capitalist domination. But that does not mean that they can't. And what do I know? I'm not a diplomat. I'm not a fucking, you know, United Nations ambassador. 
I'm just some fucking kid who reads Lenin and who reads Marx and who reads Thomas Sankara and who reads, you know, uh, Kwame Nkrumah and reads Fidel Castro and tries to get an understanding of the world from that. And in doing so, you know, I've been wrong. I, I plainly admit I was wrong about this situation. I, I still am wrong about some things that I'm actively learning about and trying to, you know, critically uh, engage with. But what the ambassador is putting forward is very similar to what the Chinese government and their diplomats put forward, which was the necessity to push for peace, you know, and Lenin says there is no such thing as true peace in uh, under an imperialist world. And I agree. But peace being a temporary state, a temporary condition by which active militarism is not being engaged in. This is a important distinction, an important condition, but it's not the end goal. It is not a success in and of itself because supposed peace under a society ran by capitalism and imperialism is peace for the ruling class peace for the Democrats and the Republicans, but not for their voters, for the Ukrainian government and the Russian government, but not for the people who are actively being killed by neo-Nazi gangs and others throughout the region. Peace, you know, for the downing of arms, you know, the putting down of arms between uh, resistance movements and governments uh, who are repressing them is a temporary condition which can be changed. This is why time and time again, groups like the New People's Army, the Naxalites, and other guerrillas across the world continue to pick up the gun against their oppressors is because peace is not truly peace under imperialism and capitalism. It is not peace for the whole people. It is peace for the ruling class. So in finishing what, you know, the ambassador really talked about, he said, we need to look forward. We don't need to look back to empires and, and ways of living that, you know, predate any of us. He says we need to look forward. He says he wants the Kenyan people and the African continent has wanted something different forged through peace. He says many people want integration, but not through force or by empire. Militarism lies on its death, or excuse me, multilateralism lies on its deathbed today, he says. This was the day that Russia announced the uh, uh, breakaway republic sovereignty. And so, you know, I got about five, ten minutes here. Let's try to wrap up on this. What, what he's really trying to put forward is really important because... As much as we want to support these people's right to self-determination and sovereignty, as much as we want to support, you know, any government that is under fire and under, uh, well, maybe not any government, any people that is under fire and under the, you know, auspice of uh, imperialism, of global capitalism, of colonialism. But at the same time, We don't want to do that uncritically. So there's a few things that he said that I want to point out that, you know, I want to further advance what he was saying. 
because I think if they were each given, you know, hours upon hours to speak, he would have said these things himself. And I think in a lot of ways he did. But if you just listen to the words that came out of his mouth, you might miss some of its meaning. So when he spoke about the fact that we need peace, we need internationalist ties, we need the bodies that exist to be able to actually do what they're intending to do, which is fight for and, you know, ultimately build an internationalist uh, world where the people are given power, where people are uh, provided for, and where people are given the ability, again, to seek peace, true peace, true internationalist proletarian peace. He talks about the internationally recognized borders as, you know, what the African continent had to inherit and what they took forward. And in some cases, of course, it's obvious that he's implying that the Russian government and federation should allow for the pre-existing borders and colonial ties to be what they are and just try to develop them forward, try to take hold of what they are and try to make them better. A few things. One. A lot of these borders are recognized and created by imperialism. So do we have to take them for what they are? Yes. Do we have to accept them and keep them as they are? Not if we don't have to. If we can build a world where people are able to decide for themselves that we don't want borders anymore, that we want, you know, Maybe we want nations for the sake of like, okay, this is a culturally, ethnically different people group. And so they want to build a society of their own. That's, I think, fine. And we'll have to put an asterisk there because nation states are a difficult thing and something that I'm learning more about. But rather than having borders, having, you know, just plain essentially lines drawn in the sand that says we're going to try our best to do everything that we can in this area to make things best for everyone. Um, But that does not mean that at this borderline, everything is ours. You will not touch it. And this is, you know what I'm saying? Like build political ties, build connections, build collaborative movements and projects to better the, you know, the world around us. And I think a lot of these countries are doing that. I think if you look at Venezuela, if you look at Nicaragua, if you look at Bolivia, if you look at Vietnam, if you look at China, they are trying to build these ties, the Belt and Road Initiative, although a lot of people have their critical concepts of this, which I can't always disagree with, you know, um, this is one of the ways in which these internationalist ties are built. And so in doing so, it shows that it is different, not the best but different than what imperialism and capitalism have created to this point. So his point about, you know, inheriting what we've got, yes, that is very true. We have to accept what is the reality, not simply continue waging war to create an ideal uh, by fighting each other. Instead, we need to come together and fight our true oppressors, right? So when he talks about the need for peace, when he talks about the need for Nonviolence, sure, we don't want the Russian people being killed by or killing the Ukrainian people. We do not want 
the, uh, you know, and I use this word loosely, so forgive me, we do not want the American people killing, uh, you know, African folks, killing uh, Latin American folks. We do not want uh, Europeans killing Asian folks across the country, you know, across the world. But <laughs> that doesn't mean that we are strictly on principle nonviolent. We have to understand that self-defense, um, revolutionary defeatism, these are all opportunities to overthrow the pre-existing forms of oppression. We have governments all across the world that are repressing their people, that are killing their people, that are allowing capitalism and imperialism to advance forward even hundreds of years after we have realized, recognized, and fought for a world without them. And so, you know, on principle saying we're nonviolent, we don't want any violence, sure. We do not believe in the perpetration of violence against nonviolent people. We do not believe that empires, imperialists, capitalists, oppressors, and exploiters should be allowed to violently repress the oppressed and exploited. However, as Franz Fanon points out, Che Guevara, Mao, Fidel Castro, Thomas Sankara, and plenty of others, including a lot of the people that are fighting right now in places like Palestine, in the South, or the West Sahara, in uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, and in many other places like the Philippines and elsewhere. You can only be oppressed for so long. You can only be enslaved, beaten, brutalized, tortured, and emaciated for such a period of time before it is only right and righteous for you to fight back and fight for your own humanity. Oppressed people will not stay oppressed for long. That is our charge for the future. And so we must be building movements to help free people from oppression. But we must understand that folks like, you know, actually, I don't even think specifics are necessary. The principal claim of nonviolence as a revolutionary or liberatory form of struggle is incorrect by history's own proving. And so violence is a tool by which the masses, the people, need to critically be able to free themselves using this tool. Violence is an opportunity for exploited people to fight back against their exploiters. And so if you yourself say, you know, this is a, a speech that Kwame Ture says, uh, or this is a, a, something that Kwame Ture says in a speech that he gave, because someone walks up and he says, you know, you talked about violence, but I think violence is evil and stupid and bad and nobody should do it. And the kid goes to walk away and Kwame Ture says, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't go anywhere. Let me ask you this. Kwame says, let me say that I'm a slave master. All of you are my slaves, he points to the crowd. And he says, let's say that the only way that you can free yourself from being my slave is by bopping me over the head with a club. What are you going to do? The kid sits there. And a grin comes over his face and he turns around and he walks away. And everybody claps and smiles and laughs and, you know, jeers at him. But if you are trying to go around telling people who are being killed on a day-to-day -day basis that they can't fight back, you need to understand what you're talking about, right? 
So in closing up, I want to talk about our, our you know, mission going forward. We have to be anti-war. We do not want war. We don't want war of any kind, uh, especially of war between imperialist uh, states. We also do not want, um, you know, the Russian people and the Ukrainian people to further their contradictions and their divisions. We want to forge unity. We want to forge, um, you know, solidarity. And so to do so, we have to build a movement based on unity, based on solidarity. So we have to try to build connections with people. This is difficult, but it's not impossible. There are organizations that are doing incredible work that you can get connected with, like the Black Alliance for for Peace. Um, And uh, you can get involved in their solidarity network and start to meet people all over the world. Spirit of Mandela is doing the same thing. You can also, on a local level, go around and start teaching people about imperialism, start teaching people about war and why it happens, especially in the age of empire. And then you can use this education, you can use these conversations to show people that, listen, right now, the United States government is giving $798 billion to the Pentagon. It wants to give more next year. Half of the people in your city probably don't have, you know, sustainable living, meaning they can't afford the heat if it goes up. They can't afford food if it goes up. They can't afford rent if it goes up. There has to be something to stop that. In my state, we're trying to pass good cause legislation, which would make it so that evictions had to be predicated on an actual reason, which then can be tried in a court of law where the defendants who are evicted are given actual representation. Because that's one issue. It's like when you're evicted, if you can't afford a lawyer, there's a good chance you're fucked. Um, But also understanding that this in and of itself is not enough. We need a mass movement that good cause legislation is a part of, that we are able to, as a movement, cultivate and then use in our favor until it is no longer useful. But folks, this is the last thing I have to say before I go movements are the only things that are going to be able to do change and create a world that individuals and people themselves cannot. We need a mass mobilization of oppressed and exploited people, and we need to organize them. We need to struggle with them, and we need to fight for liberation for them. That means fighting for socialism. That means using Marxism, Leninism, communism, and other critical Uh, Other critical ideas that uh, go against capitalism and engaging with them. So anyways, folks, I hope you had a great one. I hope you're having a great day. I hope the episode was good. Let me know what you think about it. And please stay well, stay safe, and stay revolutionary. We'll see you next time. Peace.